scripture in Hebrews chapter 11 this morning, verses 20 through 22, is what we're going to look at this morning, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 20 through 22. You might be wondering whether we're ever going to get out of Hebrews chapter 11. We'll eventually get there. Hebrews 11. 20 through 22 this morning. Be reading from the English Standard Version for you. By faith, Isaac speaking, or by faith, Isaac invoked future blessing on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Let's pray real fast this morning. Father, take your word this morning. Penetrate our hearts and lives. Let us see a faith that trusts in God's plan. Trust in your plan. May that be our prayer this morning. May our faith trust in your plan, even when we don't see the end. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So this morning we want to look at faith that trusts in God's plan. At first I thought about titling the sermon something about dying in faith, mainly because these three verses are taking place at the end of life of Isaac, of Jacob, and of Joseph. However, as I began to look more closely, you would notice that Isaac's faith looks to the future. Jacob's faith looks forward, so he blesses his grandchildren, and Joseph's last words point to the future. It is clear that all of these men trusted in God's plan. In a way, I think it still relates to death as well because of their faith and trust in God's plan. They were each able to die well. I think I'd like to die well in my life when my time comes. I trust that I will die well with a faith in the Lord that will not be shaken, a faith that trusts in God's plan, that I would be able to say like Paul did, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that will that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, Philippians 1.20. With that said, let's remember that God came to Abraham and entered into a covenant with him, but not just with him, but with all generations that would come through him, which is why Hebrews chapter 11, when we read that, we don't just have random individuals listed. We have generations that came from Abraham. Now, God gave Abraham a particular prophecy in Genesis where he says, Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land, that is not theirs, and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I'll bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Genesis chapter 15. To the men in this chapter, those events were still in the future. In other words, they knew it was God's plan, 
but they had yet to experience it. It was revealed to them through prophecy. Paul tells us that God has a plan and that he works things according to the counsel of his will in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11. And then in Ephesians chapter 3 verses 10 and 11, he adds that the eternal purpose of God is accomplished in Jesus Christ and it is for the praise and the glory and the wisdom of God. Here we have Isaac and Jacob and Joseph realizing God's plan and putting their trust in Him and in His plan. That is what faith does. Our faith should do the same. Knowing that God is indeed working all things out according to the counsel of His will for our ultimate good. And so therefore, even though we may not understand it, our faith puts trust in God's plan. In particular, in this case, faith faces death and trust in God's plan. And while there are many lessons to be learned from these men, the author of Hebrews drives home the point for us that each of these died with faith in God's promises. Even in the life of Isaac and Jacob, they had many failures in their walk of faith. And yet, but the great, by the grace of God, they crossed the finish line with a strong faith. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 1.6 states this, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You can be confident if you have begun this journey of faith that the same grace that started you out will see you through to the end. So let's see a faith that trusts in God's plan this morning. First, Isaac's faith in blessing Jacob and Esau trusted in God's plan. Look at verse 20. It says, By faith, Isaac invoked future blessing on Jacob and Esau. This comes from Genesis chapter 27. Isaac was an old man, and he was blind. And he called for his favorite son, who was Esau. And he requested that Esau bring him some fresh game and cook it up for him in his favorite way. And Esau was a great hunter. After Esau did this, Isaac would then bless him. Now the father's blessing invoked getting a double portion of the family inheritance to the firstborn son and included prophetic words about the future of the son. Now at the birth of the twins, Jacob and Esau, God made it clear that two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger, Genesis 25-23. Jacob, who is the father of the nation of Israel, was the younger. Esau, who is the father of the nation of Edom, was the older. Isaac liked Esau more, and it was evident. And Jacob was what we would call a mama's boy. So, what happens when mama overhears that dad is about to give the family blessing to the older son, Esau, well, Mama went into action. She comes up with a plan that's going to secure the blessing on her favorite son. Now, to be honest, we don't know whether she was trying to make sure the prophecy was being fulfilled as far as the older shall serve the younger, or whether she was just making sure her favorite son was treated best. Most likely, she was just making sure her favorite son was treated best. We also don't know whether Isaac was deliberately going against God's word, 
Most likely not, I would venture to guess. He probably did not understand the significance of the prophecy, nor did he care to try to understand it. Instead, he was more interested in tasting his favorite meat than in following what God had said. Now, you may or may not know the account, but Jacob dresses up in his brother's clothes. He puts some hair on his arms and hands because Esau was hairy. And that's what his name means, by the way, hairy one. And uh, Isaac um, wants this, this meat. And so Jacob brings some of Mama's stew to his aged father, dressed up like his brother, to con his brother and his father out of the blessing. Isaac is deceived and inadvertently fulfills God's earlier prophecy that was made to Rebekah by giving Jacob the blessing. And now, here's the question that should be on everyone's mind as we read this. How did Isaac act by faith when he was deceived and did what he did by giving the blessing to Jacob? How is he acting by faith when he's deceived in what he's doing? And the author of Hebrews gives us no details as to how he acted by faith. He doesn't even bring up the difference between Jacob and Esau's blessings. All he says is the blessing of his sons reveals that Isaac was acting in faith that God would fulfill the prophetic aspects of the future blessing. Now, I'll say this. Isaac could have easily reversed the blessing to Jacob, but he refused. It would seem that he reached the point that he knew God, God's will, what God's will was, and God's will had to be done. In fact, he says of Jacob when he tells Esau that he had blessed him, he says, yes, and he shall be blessed. Now, right before Jacob fled, because that is what you do when your brother hates you and wants to kill you, you flee. So right before Jacob fled, Isaac tells him not to take a Canaanite wife. And then he says this, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you, to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham in Genesis 28, verses 3 and 4. Now, Jacob had no wife. He didn't have any company of peoples that descended from him. They did not own any of the promised land that he speaks of other than a burial plot. And that's the key. Because what's he say? He tells him to that about the land. Isaac had faith in the pronouncement of the blessing. It's a demonstration of his faith because there was no indication that anything of what he said would come to fruition. There was no indication. He has no idea. He's about ready to die and he gives the blessing. He has no idea what's going to happen. But he still in his blessing has faith that it's going to happen. He trusts in God. This is not some cute little story, especially as we look at everything behind chapter 11, verse 20. But it's a demonstration of Isaac's faith and his trust in the Lord for the things yet to come. Even though Isaac was more interested in his belly than he was the word of God, Esau was a 
man who was who despised his own birthright for a bowl of stew, Rebecca intentionally deceives her husband and encourages her son to lie to his father. And Jacob goes along with it and lies, taking advantage of his blind father. When you look at the backdrop, it's not a cute little story at all. It's like, wow, this is really messed up. Yet we're forced to say that God uses these sinful, selfish people who did not have any regard for God to fulfill his sovereign purpose. Where's the regard for God in any of what happened? There isn't any. It's all about themselves. It's all about gaining for themselves. Yet God uses it to accomplish what he is going to accomplish. God had chosen Jacob and he had rejected Esau. God's purpose according to his sovereign will will always stand. There's nothing that can keep it from happening. It doesn't matter if we understand it or not. He does not need us to understand his purpose in order for it to happen. Isaac clearly did not understand the purpose at first, yet it still happened. The accomplishment of his will is also not based upon people being obedient to him. He doesn't need us to be obedient in order to accomplish his will. Although we should always obey, he used Jacob and Rebekah's lies and deception as they lied and deceived their father and husband in order to fulfill his purpose. Paul speaks about this in the account in Romans chapter 9 when he says about God's purpose, he says, it depends not on human will nor exertion, but on God who has mercy in Romans 9.16. And so we have this tremendous account of Isaac blessing his sons, recorded for us in the Bible, and it teaches us that we should trust in God even when our circumstances seem difficult. We can look at the world around us and we can see how sinful it is. Even from those who claim to be followers of Christ, and we can think that there is no way that we could fulfill the Great Commission of making disciples of all nations, and that there's no way that a church can possibly bring glory to God, but we trust in God's plan. That's what faith does. It trusts in God's plan. God said that we are to make disciples of all nations. That's God's plan. So we trust in God's plan. God says that from every tribe, every tongue, and nation... There will be people purchased by the blood of His Son who are gathered around His throne in Revelation chapter 5. If God says that, that's His plan. And we trust in God's plan. He said that the bride of Christ, which is the church, will be pure and spotless. A bride that is made ready for her husband. In spite of the world that we live in, in spite of all of our struggles, in spite of our failures, the purpose of God, the plan of God, will be Fulfill. You can take it to the bank, church. He said it. It's going to be fulfilled. It will happen. We don't look at our world with apathy. And we don't turn a blind eye to sin. Instead, we are encouraged to be faithful, trusting in God's plan, in spite of the sinful disappointments that we find in the world. We trust in God's plan. We have faith. We have to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. 
So we see that Isaac's faith in blessing Jacob and Esau, he trusted in God's plan. Secondly, we see that Jacob's faith, blessing his grandchildren, trusted in God's plan. There's a lot contained here in this verse. Jacob is old. He's about to die, and he blesses the two sons of Joseph. But not only does he give a blessing, but he worshiped while he was dying, and that's profound. So I'm going to break this down like this with the verses as we look as we look at the verses. We see first that Jacob blesses his grandchildren, and then we'll look at Jacob's worshiping. So first, Jacob shows faith in God's plan by blessing his grandchildren. Jacob blessing his grandchildren is recorded for us in Genesis 48. Jacob and all of his sons and all of their families have made their way to Egypt to endure the famine, and Joseph had heard that his father was sick. He takes his two sons to visit his father, and Jacob re- recalled when God had appeared to him and reaffirmed the Abrahamic covenant to him. And then he claimed Joseph's two sons as his, and he made them heirs. In practice, this designates Joseph as the firstborn, who received a double portion of the inheritance. Reuben was the natural firstborn, but he had forfeited his portion because he had relations with his father's concubine, Bilhah. And so for this reason, Joseph's two sons each received of the inheritance. Now, when Jacob placed his hands on the young men to bless them, he deliberately crosses his hands, puts his right hand on Ephraim, who is the younger and his left hand on Manasseh, who is the older. The scripture says that this displeased Joseph. He tried to correct his father, but Jacob responded with that. He knew that what he was doing, and he predicted that both sons would be great. The younger brother shall be greater than the older, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So Jacob put the younger, Ephraim, before the older, Manasseh. Do you see a theme here? Jacob was the younger, Joseph was the youngest, now Ephraim the younger, all being favored, and it reveals a lot to us. First, it reveals to us that God's ways are not man's ways. He operates according to his sovereign choice. God's ways are not man's ways. He operates according to his sovereign choice. We don't just see this in a spot or two in Scripture, but it's a dominant theme throughout Scripture. Here the natural thing would have been for Manasseh, who was the firstborn, to be over his younger brother because that's what happened. However, Jacob demonstrates that God's sovereign choice thwarts the way of man. Even though humanity is ignorant of the things of God and in spite of our sinfulness and our desire to always do things our way, God's way and his sovereign choice always prevails. What I am saying is that there is nothing that thwarts the will of God. Nothing. If anything can thwart the will of God, if we say, oh, that that can keep God's will from happening, then He's not God. Then He's not sovereign. Then He is not a ruler. Because it can keep it from happening. But He is the God of the universe. There's nothing that stops God's will. Now this applies to everything, and especially to salvation. Man's way of salvation is according to human choice and human merit. That's how man would say we get to God. We have to make a choice and we have to earn it. 
And so the way it works is good people who make the right choice get to go to heaven and bad people who make wrong choices don't get to go to heaven. That's man's way of salvation. That's not God's way, but that's man's way. Now, some people try to deny that. And they say they believe until you, uh, they, they believe it's not really man's choice until you really press in on them and ask them based upon what do they get to go to heaven. And they will say, well, based upon their choice of God. Well, if it's based upon your choice of God, in that moment you've declared that you are more righteous than someone else because you've made the right choice and someone else makes the wrong choice. Therefore, salvation is based upon your merit of you making the right choice, declaring yourself more righteous than someone else. Salvation is not based on us. God's way of salvation throughout the entirety of Scripture is according to His choice and His purpose, not according to man's choice and man's purpose. It's not about us. It's all about God. And to help make that clear, let me read to you some Scripture. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him, Luke 10, 22. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father, John 6, 65. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? John 6.70, though they were not yet born and had nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of the works, but because of him who calls. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he says, mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he will harden. Romans 9, 11, 15 through 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that he would be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. James 1, 18. I am here to tell you that what Scripture clearly teaches about salvation rests on God's will and not on man's will. It rests on the power and the grace of an almighty God and it does not rest upon man because if salvation rested upon the power of man, every single one of us would be damned for all eternity. It rests in the power of God and by His Sovereign choice in Scripture makes it clear from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation that it is all about God who does the choosing, not on man who makes the choice. We would never, ever, ever choose God if it rested on us. God's ways are not man's ways. And it makes it clear. But not only that, not only do we see that God's ways are not man's ways, but we notice in this passage of Scripture that parents and grandparents should seek spiritual blessing for their children. Parents and grandparents should seek spiritual blessings for their children. What do you pray for and seek for your children and grandchildren? 
I've heard people talk about their children or teenagers, especially teenagers leaving the church. Yet it's clear what keeps teenagers' faith going to church and that sort of thing. It's clear we know what keeps them close to the Lord. It's directly proportional to how much time they spend in God's Word. I mean, it's off the charts. A teenager that spends time in God's Word does not leave the church something like 85% of the time. In other words, Bible engagement, not just in teens, but in the people of the church, keeps people in church. Keeps teens in church. Causes people to live in community. Causes more confession of sin. Causes more praying, more giving, sharing the gospel more. Do you seek spiritual blessing for your children? Do you pray for spiritual blessing? Or worldly success? Get a job. Be good at this or be good at that or whatever it might be. Or is your focus on your children and grandchildren? Is your focus on being godly? Ephraim and Manasseh were the sons of the second most powerful person in all of Egypt. They were raised in luxurious conditions, probably friends with Pharaoh's children. They had a servant that most likely took care of every single need that they had. They would have had the best education and they were heirs to a huge financial estate and they could have done whatever they wanted to as far as careers are concerned. They had it made. Grandpa Jacob could have just said, may you live long and prosper in Egypt as your father has. May you have a great fortune and enjoy everything this life has to offer. But that's not what he said. They had Everything that you could want. But that's not what Jacob declares. That's not the blessing. Jacob, who was a shepherd, who was a sojourner in Egypt, to only avoid starving because Cana was hit by a famine, takes these two grandsons. And he now confers on them a blessing of Abraham. Now I want you to stop and think about that for just a moment. How would you respond? You see, because the world could care less about a spiritual blessing. Our focus is on material things. The person who has the mind of the world looks at this and they think, big deal. You're giving them a double portion of what? A famine-stricken land that you do not even own any of except for a burial plot? Big deal. Here in Egypt, we have everything you could ever want or dream of. And you are... And, and, and what are you even saying? Do you even know what you're saying? You don't even own anything. How can you possibly give a blessing? Oh, Christian, how often is that our attitude with our children and our grandchildren? How often is our attitude, you go out and get everything that you possibly can in this world, inadvertently. How, how often is our attitude, make as much money as you can, be as good as you can at everything that you do. How often is that our attitude? And then we wonder why they turn their back on God when they leave. Because we're not concerned with spiritual blessing. Jacob is giving his grandsons a spiritual blessing. He's doing so by faith in God's promise to Abraham. And his blessing is far greater than anything that this world offers. Even though there was zero evidence that God would give the land to Jacob's descendants, 
Jacob still loved God's promises. And he confers it to his grandchildren. He still believed in them. It's tragic that Christian parents today desire for their children and their grandchildren to succeed materially over and above succeeding spiritually. When they hear that their child wins some award or makes the traveling team or gets the scholarship or whatever it might be, we get really excited when, when we hear that our, our child or grandchildren is headed off to the mission field in some foreign country, we try to talk some sense into them. I've seen it done over and over again. After all, we don't, we don't want them to throw their life away on something that will, that won't get them some sort of material blessing, that won't make them a bunch of money. Plus, we want our grandkids to be close, not far away. Oh, church, that we would rid ourselves of such worldly attitudes. We should want our children to walk with God and wherever He leads them. We should encourage and we should desire for spiritual blessing for our children. We should be on our knees saying, God, bless my child spiritually. Let me recommend some resources to you. It's called Foundations. It's a 260-day Bible reading plan that, that your child, it's for kids, teens, and adults. It's put out by a guy named Robbie Gallaty, who my wife says has big arms, and i got to get arms as big as his. Anyway, it's put out by him. You can go to replicate.org and find out where to best order them. I would challenge you to get them. Get your family into God's Word. If you say, well, I don't know how to, how to buy those, Pastor. Come, I'll show you how to buy them. Get them and get into God's Word and start seeking spiritual blessing for you, for your kids, for your grandchildren. So God's ways are not our ways. Parents and grandparents should seek spiritual blessing far beyond material blessing. And thirdly, God is sovereign in His giving of gifts. God is sovereign in His giving of gifts. Sometimes it's easy for us to wonder why someone's gifted a certain way and we're not gifted the same way. However, God is sovereign in how He gifts us. It's based upon what He wants to accomplish and not what we want to accomplish. So as we look at Jacob and Esau, we see that God distinguishes between individuals in the matter of salvation and His sovereign purpose for for more on that, we can read Romans chapter 9, verses 10 through 18. The record of Jacob's blessing his grandchildren makes it clear that God is free to give not only spiritual blessing, but even material blessing to those who are his children according to his sovereign purpose. Let me just be clear. Some of God's children are wealthy. In case you're wondering, I'm not one of them. But some of God's children are wealthy. If you decide to deliver to me some of your wealth, I will receive it. But it's a fact of life. Some are wealthy. Some have great material blessing. Some don't. Some have powerful spiritual gifts. and Some have lesser gifts according to 1 Corinthians 12. But God is sovereign in His giving of gifts. Let me tell you what I do know concerning God's giving of gifts. What I do know is that each and every one of us is responsible for using the gifts the Lord has given us to advance His kingdom. That's what I know. Including our material blessing. We're responsible 
for using those gifts to advance not our kingdom, not our comfort, but to advance His kingdom. That's for spiritual gifts as well as material gifts. We're not gifted to be selfish. We're not gifted to compare ourselves with others or even to be envious with what we do not have and that others do have. We are gifted to advance the kingdom of God with what we do have. And we will be held responsible for doing so or not doing so. So we've seen Jacob's blessing of his grandchildren. We have thoroughly looked at that. But now let's see Jacob shows faith in his worship of God. Jacob shows faith in his worship of God. No one can rightly worship God without faith. Jacob worshiped God in the blessing of his grandchildren in his dying hour. We read about it in Genesis chapter 47 that before he blessed his grandsons, he worshiped God. Jacob had asked Joseph to swear that he would both bury him in Egypt or that he would bury him in Egypt, but that he would be buried with his ancestors. And when Joseph swore to him that he would bury him with his ancestors, Jacob bows down in worship. The point is this, that a weak dying man offered worship to God. May we declare at the end of our life that the riches of Christ got better and better. May our faith cry out in worship to an almighty God that we may see that the promise of God exceeds our expectation. Oh, that we will worship God. That we would not be slow to worship God. Jacob worshiped out of gratitude for God. Let us finish this life magnifying the goodness of God. That He cared for us and that He worked His will out in our life. That, yea, though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that He was our shepherd. Oh, that when we come to die, we would call out and bless the Lord for everything He has done for us. We owe Him everything. The evils that He's kept us from. The blessing that He has brought to us. We must adore Him. And though we do not see Him in this life, in death, we will see Him face to face. Oh, that we would have faith to worship Him now while still living. If we read through the death scene of Jacob, he's blessing all of his sons. And then in Genesis chapter 49, he's delivering to them all this prophecy. And verse 17, he finishes speaking about the tribe of Dan. And then in verse 18, we have this little verse interjected in the middle of all this. Go go read through it. Just start reading through this death scene. He's, he's pouring out these prophecies. And then he says this. He takes a break and he says this. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Just in the middle of all of it. That's what he says. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Jacob longs to be home with the Lord. But he's still finishing his final duties on earth. He's still telling his sons of the future. He's not done yet. He waits for salvation. He even longs to be with the Lord. But he must complete what God has for him. And then the Lord will bring salvation. The church, Jacob didn't own any of the promised land. And when Joseph agrees to bury him in Canaan, 
He worships God. Because by faith he sees in Joseph's promise hope that God will fulfill his promise. His staff is quite possibly symbolic of the pilgrim life that he's lived as an heir of the promise to Abraham. But Jacob worshipped because he had faith. Not in this life, but faith in the promise of God for a better country, which is heaven. Like we read about in verse 16, even though he was dying, a dying man in a foreign land, he died in faith in the promises of God. Oh, that we would die in faith in the promises of God, worshiping his name. Last, Joseph's faith in future promises proves his trust in God. Joseph's faith in future promises proves his trust in God. There's so much contained for us in verse 22. I could probably preach a whole sermon on that text alone. Verse 22 refers us back to Genesis chapter 50, verses 24 and 25. As Joseph is dying, he tells his brothers, fellow Jews, that God would bring them back to the land that was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then he made him swear that they would carry his bones with them when they returned to Canaan. Now let's be clear. If there was ever a person that should have lost faith, it was Joseph. Yet he had a strong faith in his lifetime. As a young man, he sold as a slave in Egypt by his own brothers who were going to murder him, but they didn't. Threw him in a hole and sold him into slavery. They told their father that he was mauled by an animal. He believes that he's dead this whole time. While he was a slave, he was falsely accused by his master's wife of trying to seduce her because he had rejected her advancements towards him, choosing to follow God and live righteously rather than enjoy sin for a season. He goes to prison because of, because of her false accusations. That's what righteous living got him. While in prison, he lives righteously, ministers to people. And while there, he interprets some dreams for a baker and a cupbearer. Wasn't so good for the baker, but the cupbearer had a favorable interpretation. Joseph asks him to remember him when he returns to Pharaoh's court, but the cupbearer forgets all about Joseph for two years. Joseph had reason to doubt his faith, but he never did. He believed and followed God no matter the circumstances he found himself in. And he reigned as a man of God in a foreign land. It's interesting that in all of the display of great faith that Joseph had, the author of Hebrews chooses to tell about Joseph's bones. I mean, Joseph had huge displays of faith. And what's the author bring up? His bones. It seems weird. I believe it's because it goes along with the rest of the theme that a dying man had faith in a future promise. Joseph's facing death. And it would seem like the promises of God are impossible. He'd spent all these years in a foreign land and yet he believed that God would fulfill his promise. Think about it. 
It had been more than 200 years since God had given the promise to Abraham. And yet here are his descendants living in Egypt, not in Canaan, in the land of promise. At this point in Egypt, everything is great. Thanks to Joseph, they are not enslaved until after he dies. Then after that, it would still be 200 years before Moses would lead them out of Egypt and then, and then another 40 years before they would enter into Canaan. Yet here's Joseph dying. And he speaks of the Exodus. And says that you need to take my bones when you leave Egypt. He's showing his faith in God. The future promise of God. By having them take his bones, he's disassociating himself from all of his success that he had in Egypt and associating himself with the people of God and displays his faith in the future promise of God. He was not looking for some grand tomb. He wanted his final resting place to be in the land of promise. Furthermore, think about the fact that he has given these instructions to the Jewish people in Egypt. He's displaying for them that they can't be satisfied with the blessings that they find in Egypt, but they must only be satisfied in God's promise of future blessing. How often are we faced with the temptation of success in this world? How often are we faced with seeking the comforts of this world more than we seek after God? Listen to me. Joseph had wealth. It is far easier for a rich man to trust in his riches than forget the Lord. But not Joseph. Don't put your hope in material success. But realize the riches of this world are empty and they will mean nothing when you're on your deathbed. You're not going to be laying there about ready to die and the first thought that pops in your head be, oh boy, I sure wish I made more money. Because it's not going to matter. However, those who know Christ and trust in Him and the future promise of heaven have a hope while on their deathbed. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world yet lose his soul? Nothing. So, what does all this have to do with me? All these patriarchs had something in common. They were dying. They all had faith that trusting God's plan. All that started with the obedience of Abraham when he was obedient to the word of God. Church, faith knows that God's word never fails. Never. No matter what. Faith knows that God's word must be obeyed at all costs. So how does it apply to you? We're all dying people. Every breath you take, you're one breath closer. Where's your faith at? Is your faith in the Word of God, knowing that it never fails and it must be obeyed? You see, it's not a question of whether the pastor says it. It's not a question of whether, oh, a church committee decided this. It's not a question of, oh, I read this in the church bylaws, the church constitution, or my best friend says it. What matters is what God's Word says. The majority of God's word is abundantly clear. Abundantly clear. It's not like we gotta, we gotta try to figure it out. It is abundantly 
clear. When it says, therefore, when we, when we read it, we should obey it. We should be obedient to it. Do you believe it? Do you have faith in it? That's what faith does. It says, I trust in God's Word. I trust what it says. When it tells me to go make disciples, I trust that. That I must go make disciples. When it says that all nations, every tribe, every tongue, every nation will be there to praise God. I trust that. Therefore, I must be actively involved in building the kingdom of God. When it says that that even the gates of hell will not prevail against His church, I trust that because that means that gates are defensive and that means the church is on the offensive charging the gates of hell. So I trust that. That means I will attack the gates of hell as a follower of Christ actively involved in a local church. I Trust that. You see, it's not a question of whether someone says it. It's a question of what God's Word says and that we will be obedient to it. Do you know and believe what it says about Jesus and salvation and judgment and riches and purity and everything else? Are you obedient to God's Word? Faith trusts God's plan. Faith trusts what it reads in God's book and it obeys it our daily bread wrote a story said many years ago a ship known as the empress of ireland went down with 130 salvation army officers on board along with many other passengers only 21 of the salvation army people survived of the 109 that drowned not one had a life preserver many of the survivors told how these brave people, seeing that there were not enough life preservers, took off their own and gave it to others, saying, I know Jesus, so I can die better than you can. It's faith. And a future promise. It's trusting in God. I often wonder how my life will end. When I come to my time of death, what will I say as my soul passes from this earth and into heaven? I pray that my soul would cry out that God has made with me an everlasting covenant and it's sure. Oh, that we would die with a faith that trusts in God's plan, that our dying testimony will become quickly, Lord Jesus, come. Oh, that we will look at our mortal body and say, Farewell, you have served me well, and I will run to Jesus. Oh, what sown in weakness will rise in power. May we take care, Christian, that with our last dying breath, it will be an act of triumph of our faith, and it will be, and it will be that if we are obedient to God's Word. I love what Charles Spurgeon said. We cannot hope to die triumphantly unless we live obediently. We cannot expect to exhibit faith in dying moments if we have no faith now. God grant us faith. Oh, unbeliever, seeker, don't rest until you have faith. May the Spirit of God give you the faith of God's elect that the living may serve God and the dying may honor Him as Joseph did of old. Lord, bless us. Keep us for His sake. Do you know 
Jesus today? And are you obedient? Faith faces death by trusting in God to fulfill his future promises. Oh, that we would die knowing that our future promise is just the other side of death. May we have faith now so that we will have faith in death. Do you have faith now? Are you trusting in God's word in obedience to it? In just a moment, we're going to sing a song. We give you a chance to respond to today's message, whether it's you need some prayer. I'd be glad to pray with you. You can pray on your own. You can pray in your pew. You can come up here and pray. Maybe you need to talk. Maybe you want to come up and say, hey, pastor, can I talk to you later? Maybe you need to confess Christ as Savior today. Maybe the first time you realize that you're lost and you need Jesus as your Savior. Whatever it might be, I want to give you that chance to respond this morning as we sing in just a moment. Let's close with prayer. Father,